This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, I'm Fred Jeff Smith, Pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and I welcome you to the 18th edition of our Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And I am extremely happy today to welcome as my guest, Mr. Byron Wade, uh, who is an educator, who is a coach, who is a mentor, and who I understand is also an accomplished actor. And uh, Mr. Wade, I'm very delighted that you took the time to share with us today on the Thrive Podcast. I am very happy to be here, Fred Jeff. I like that. Tell me about you. T- tell me about Byron Wade. H- help us to know who Byron Wade is. Um, I am an only child, and I say only child because that's how I was raised. Um, but I do have an older brother and mm-hmm. a younger sister. Um, come from a broken home, and I like to highlight that because that's part of my story. Um, Grew up in the inner city, and I was raised in the Baptist church. Okay. Um, so being raised in the Baptist church, um, it gave me principles, and, you know, it it, it steered my character um, in the right direction. But being from the inner city, everybody that I grew up with didn't have those same principles. Mm-hmm. And um, they probably didn't even have parents um, that— were there in their lives. Um, my dad has been on the deacon board all my life. He's now the chairman. Um, Which church? Of Nazarene Baptist Church. Nazarene, all right. Um, the, the deacon ministry um, in Nazarene Baptist Church. And growing up, my dad was a little league coach. Um, and me being age of 33, my dad coached for about 35 years. So since I was born, um, He's always wanted to give younger inner-city kids um, the opportunity to have something extracurricular to look forward to. Um, sports, it keeps the youth clean, mm-hmm. um, and it eliminates the idle time. So as far as me, I basically inherited that same demeanor um, and that same drive to just just be a, a helpmate. Mm-hmm. Um, for people that aren't just less fortunate, but those that just had trouble um, growing up mm-hmm. and had some circumstances that may have hindered them from fulfilling their full potential. Mm-hmm. Um, you serve as a coach. You serve as a classroom teacher. You serve as a mentor uh, to young people, how do you see the the blending of those different uh, experiences? Uh, how does that interact with the way that you approach children? Do you approach children differently as a coach than you do as a mentor than you do as an instructor? I guess that's what I'm asking. Yes, I do. Um, in the classroom, you're going to deal with a diverse group of people. Um, a diverse group of young people. And as a coach, you have athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, And athletes actually have an interest in what's going on, whether it be a high level of interest or a low level of interest. Um, They all have a common interest Mm -hmm. in something. In the classroom, some kids 
have issues outside the classroom that may prevent them from being able to perform um, that really overshadows the educational side of mm -hmm. it. Um, a lot of times we're quick to point the finger at what's wrong with somebody, mm -hmm. but we don't identify why. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, as a mentor, from the classroom to um, coaching, I go that extra mile to try and identify those things. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I learned early was you have to use your passenger seat, um, meaning you can't just deal with a child during the hours that you're working on, working with them. You have to go above and beyond and have conversations with them mm -hmm. to, to get to know some things about them because kids, they don't have the same perspective as an adult. They haven't been through anything. Mm -hmm. What they're going through is, you know, the cards that they're dealt and they don't really understand. Mm -hmm. So when I can have conversations with them, get to know them, identify some things that's going on, I can be strategic in trying to help mold, shape, um, use my testimonies mm -hmm. to relate to them, um, to get through to them. Okay. Um, with regard to uh, this passenger seat uh, concept, which I find interesting, uh, if you're in the passenger seat and is, is the presumption that the child is in the driver's seat? No. Okay. What, what I'm saying, me having a, a vehicle, right. I'm driving my car. Okay. My passenger seat is empty, so you have to utilize that passenger seat to be able to have a conversation. So, I'm so, using, so they're riding along with you. Yes, You're sir. the one doing the driving. Yes, okay. I, I just want to I, I want to make sure that I understand that correctly. Uh, what are the issues that you come across regular? And, and I, I'm not asking you to betray anybody's confidences, but as you interact with young people, what what is it that <sighs> Adults think that they know children. They think that they understand children. Well, you know, we all have been children at some point or another in our lives. But is it fair for us to presume that because we have experienced our own childhood that we are cognizant, we are aware of what it is that children of 2018 are going through? Um, values and peer pressure. Um, I'll start off with peer pressure to say the way a child will act amongst their peers is totally different than they will act one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. with an adult. Um, for example, um, if you basically try to expose a child or call them out or hold them accountable for their actions, they're going to respond differently than they would you talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. As far as values go, um, the things that we value, and I speak with the experiences I have, mm -hmm. the, 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 the inner city kids, they value the wrong things. Mm -hmm. um, and that is strictly a result of their environment. Okay. Um, so we all value some of the same things, but on a priority list. Mm -hmm. um, it's more important to have nice shoes, nice clothes, um, flash money. We're not, we're not instilling credit and 
you know, financial literacy and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, peer pressure and what they value, um, it's, it's a distraction. Um, and it's, you know, it forces these young people to try and prove a point, you know, try and be validated by people that really don't matter. Mm -hmm. How do you help them to understand that their value system is out of whack uh, without doing something that they might find to be belittling or insulting or embarrassing to them? <laughs> It's no longer the day when, you know, when I was, I hear you say you're 33, I got you by 23 years. I'm, I'm 56 years old. There was, there was a time in this church when if I acted up, the usher could slap me in the back of my head, and I know it because it happened more than once. Mm -hmm. And I was told, be quiet, pay attention, and I better not go find my mama or my grandmother and say, Miss Abel hit me in the back of my head because instead of them running to my defense, it was going to be, well, what'd you do to cause Miss Abel to hit you in the back of your head? That day doesn't exist anymore. And I got right. sense enough to know that day is never coming back. So how, how do you as a young man mentoring younger people, uh, help them to understand that their value system is out of place? Well, you, you force them to identify what's most most important. Mm -hmm. um, I ask them, do they care about their mom? Mm -hmm. You know, if they if they care about their mom or their siblings. So, in showing that, hey, that's the most important thing to you, then how she feels and your actions are a reflection of how much you really care mm -hmm. about, you know, what you're doing or what you're involved in or harming your mom. A lot of times we look, we're on the outside looking in at, and when I say on the outside looking in, what I mean is a young person doesn't really understand until they go through something. Mm -hmm. um, so they may see it mm -hmm. and that it doesn't hit home, mm -hmm. you know? So actually having them to identify what is most important to them, which is the concern of their parents who are going to be the only people that really hold weight in their lives at this age. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with athletes and, and, and you're an offensive coordinator uh, for a local football team, uh, is there a strong motivation on the part of the young men who are trying to uh, play football? Is their aspiration to win? Is their aspiration to use football as a vehicle to further their careers or their lives to get into college? Do they think in terms of I can use this as a vehicle to get me into college or are they just thinking about the fact I want to win on Friday night? Well, number one, it's all about the leadership. Um, that's the biggest thing um, because the structure of the program is going to determine what those goals are. Now, each athlete is going to have individual goals. Mm -hmm. um, and college is, you know, avenue that all of them 
want to get to. But talking about it and actually executing it is two different things. Mm-hmm. And that's why I um, say the leadership. Um, nowadays, in this day and age, social media has completely taken over. And I'll give you an example. If you look at any high school athlete's mm-hmm. social media page, they have multiple posts saying, blessed to have received an offer from whatever university. Um, I tend to believe that that's not actually the case. It's about validation. Mm-hmm. Now, are you registered with Clearinghouse? Have you taken the ACT? Do you know how to register for the ACT? Mm-hmm. Um, depending on what school they're at, depending on the leadership, depending on your guidance counselor, all those different factors play a part. Um, and it is the responsibility of the coach not to just be concerned about wins and losses or winning on Friday night, but to make sure that these young people do have the opportunity at higher learning, mm-hmm. whether that be a vocational situation, a technical situation, or a two-year associate's degree, four-year university, um, those types of things. Um, but again, you have to identify who these young men or these young women are mm-hmm. because realistically, everybody's not talented enough um, mm-hmm. to have those opportunities. But I like to basically use that to motivate them to be successful. Mm-hmm. Maybe you will not go to the NFL. You may not even get the opportunity to play college ball, but you can put yourself in the arena with some people that are going to help you based on your talent. Mm-hmm. So you you utilize your God-given talent, your athletic ability to get you in that arena um, with people of power that are connected, um, that will help you be successful in other areas, um, depending on what your other talents are. Mm-hmm. When it comes to spiritual development, I, and I know that as as a teacher, you're limited as to what you can say about religious things. So I'm, I'm not talking necessarily religion as much as I am spirituality. Uh, one of the things that we try to teach in the church is that uh, there's more to a person than just the physical or the mental or the emotional or even the economic, that there is a spiritual component uh, that is significant uh, and that has to be fed, has to be uh, assessed, and has to uh, play a role in the, in the overall development of a human being. As a mentor, as a coach, as a teacher, uh, as a Christian, What is your assessment of how young people view themselves spiritually? Does spirituality come up with young people today? It does, but it also depends on that individual. Um, Ironically, I recently, two weeks ago, had an exchange with a player that I talked to outside of the football field, and he told me, he said, Coach Wade, I don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, son, this is my philosophy on that. I'd rather die believing or live to believe and die to find out that it's not a God 
than to live as if they're not a God and then die to find out there is. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I didn't give him any scriptures. Right. I didn't get too heavy because I didn't want to give him too much and run him away. Right. <clears throat> so as far as, um, you know, how that resonated to him, two weeks ago, I mean, two weeks later, after the fact, he came to me and said, Coach Wade, I've been thinking about that ever since. Now, they have YouTube. Um, they have all Google. They have all this different information. So like Tupac Shakur said, you know, I may not change the world, but I'll spark the mind. So mm -hmm. what I did was basically spark his mind to provoke some thought mm -hmm. for him to seek um, knowledge and do research for himself. Mm -hmm. As far as them being spiritually aware or aware of that, it is it is troubling um, to think about that because these young people are consumed with music, um, negative influences, mm -hmm. and because that's what is considered cool, that's what they're chasing until somebody dies, mm -hmm. um, a tragedy happens, and then, you know, it's a wake-up call for some, but it, it still does not resonate. So to answer your question, I, I am still brainstorming on how I can not just promote it, but get that to resonate um, in the minds and understand it's important. Now, every school that I've ever coached at, every coach at the end of practice, we touch and we pray. But sometimes things become so much of a routine that right. it's it's really not something that they actually feel. It's just like standing up saying the Pledge of Allegiance right. every morning um, at the beginning of school. So I am still brainstorming on that. Mm -hmm. You are a mentor. I'm assuming that you associate with other mentors. Are you all a part of a formal group or an informal group or, or what? Um. It's informal. Um, they do have, you know, formal groups. But because all coaches, I, ha I hate to say it, are all so competitive mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they, they're they very discreet mm -hmm. um, with how they move. Now, you know, connecting with the right type of people um, that actually care about kids. All coaches don't necessarily care about kids. Some of them oh. do care about only wins and losses. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't be in the business if you didn't care about, you know, competing and, right. and winning. Right. But as I said, I can only speak for myself. Um, you know, I inherited this from my father mm -hmm. who simply coached in, in Dixie, in the neighborhood of Dixie, to get kids off the street and promote something positive. Mm -hmm. um, as far as strategies, um to reach kids, um, conversations are had, but that is something that us within this community, and hopefully this conversation I'm having with you, mm -hmm. um, can can we can jumpstart mm -hmm. um, to get that rolling because all coaches do want to make a difference. I can say that. Um, there's nothing wrong with being competitive and wanting to win and excel, um, but at a certain point in life, all of us have to understand that it's not about us. And Let me ask you a couple of technical questions. I, I, I say technical, and they might not be technical, but I'm just curious. 
Uh, a couple of years ago, I seem to recall that there was a debate about lowering GPAs to allow young people to play uh, in in high school athletics. Uh, and, and there were some people who were saying that it's a good thing because it gives them something to do, it gives them something to aspire toward, it keeps them motivated, it keeps them in the classroom. And if you take that away from them, then you might lose them altogether. The others who were saying, well, if you lower the GPA to a certain point, then you're making academics irrelevant uh, and, and you're showing favoritism towards sports. It's been a couple of years. What's your assessment of, of the, 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 the controversy regarding GPA versus the ability to participate in high school athletics? Well, earlier I said, you know, a lot of times we're quick to point out what's wrong with a child right. and we don't identify why. Right. Um, so you have to think about what if this child was in a household, he had younger siblings, he or she had younger siblings that they had to take care of, and those critical years um, as in early childhood, they didn't learn how to read. Right. So for whatever reason, they got to 6th, 7th, 8th grade, ninth grade, and they still are at a low-performing level reading-wise, well, the child can't really read that well if they can read, but they have an immense athletic ability. Right. So you take that away from them, and what, what other options are they left with? Mm-hmm. You know, the streets, which you, you don't have to put any effort in that. You don't have to work towards that. You can that, – that's where – all the undesirables are. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I tell my players and the young people I deal with all the time, chickens flock equals sore. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you want to separate yourself from those types of things. Um, as far as the GPA, there are pros and cons to it, um, but no system is going to be agreed upon um, that's put in place by everybody. It's mm-hmm. not going to be a consensus um, for everybody to agree with it. But, you know, who are we catering to? Mm-hmm. Um, they have an act that is no longer in place, but no child left behind. Right. Um, no child left behind also means no child gets ahead. Um, so hmm. those are the pros and cons. But if you leave a child behind, what is that saying to the world, you mm-hmm. know, in general, that we only care about the ones that are smart. So if that child that, for whatever reason, whatever circumstances preventing them from being able to learn those basic math skills, those basic reading skills, mm-hmm. then, oh, we're left out the in- equation. We're not included. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that lowering that GPA, um, it is a sh- big benefit to those kids that, had circumstances that may have prevented them from being able to achieve. Now, in the same breath, you have kids who are complacent, and most people are look at it like, well, this won't motivate kids to work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't think any child should be left behind, so I am in favor of it. Okay. And, and, and I like that statement, you know, if, if you're going to talk about no child left behind, you also have to consider the fact that no child gets ahead. That's, uh, 
that's profound. Um, you're also an actor. I, I don't want to just focus on, on, on the academics and the coaching part of it, even though you're an Eagles fan, and I'll, I'll forgive you for that. <laughs> uh, uh, but but, but you're, you're, you're an actor. Uh, tell me how you got into acting. Um, honestly, Fred, in college, um, I had a crush on a young lady. Um, me having this crush, um, she said she was going to go audition um, for a play. I said, well, I'm going to audition for that play in, in my mind so mm -hmm. I could get close to her. She actually did not get picked. She didn't get cast, and I did. And acting um, at Upstage Theater, it saved my life um, because in college, I was majoring in mass communications, and halfway through, I knew that's not what I wanted to do um, with my life. Mm -hmm. But I had already... Uh, uh, accumulated maybe 80 hours mm -hmm. so I had to the, the, the goal was to go ahead and finish college <clears throat> so at the age of 23 um, when I graduated and finished um, it was so much idle time that I had on my hands and you know idle time is the devil's worship right. um, I had made some bad choices um, had you know been incarcerated you know I'm not ashamed to say that because mm -hmm. My testimonies um, are so great as a result of. Um, but me being able to act within the community theater allowed me to spend time um, learning these roles. And the amount of time that you have to spend daily and weekly, um, it, it doesn't just count at rehearsal. So mm -hmm. you may rehearse Monday through Friday, six to nine, so three hours a day. Well, still, you have to look at those lines. So I didn't have time to spend with the undesirables. Mm -hmm. um, and I was good at it. Mm -hmm. I was really good at it. Um, I'm very passionate. Um, I like to show that I can relate to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. And the transitions in my life have allowed me to relate to a lot of different people. So when you talk about acting, I look forward to being able to be a police officer or a pastor or a homeless man, mm -hmm. you know, because all of those different individuals I try to relate to mm -hmm. in real life. One of the things that bothered me about uh, Denzel Washington winning the Academy Award for the role that he won for, uh, uh, Denzel Washington had played all of these positive, iconic mm -hmm. uh, characters, and uh, he didn't win. Anything, but but when he plays a corrupt police officer, a Tra gangster, training day, uh, training day, uh, he 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 wins an Academy Award for for playing that. Is that just about the fact that uh, uh, some people like the the bad character? Because if if you know anything about me, I'm a Godfather person. I love I love the Godfather, and and I am a Michael Corleone fan. I love him. You know. Al Pacino has played any number of roles. Not all of them have, have, have been the gangster, but I'll always remember him first and foremost as Michael Corleone. Is it just that the bad guy gets remembered more? Is, is, is the role, I've, I've heard actors say that uh, there's so much more diversity in the role when you play the bad guy. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts about, about that? Positive role models versus negative role models? Well, <clears throat> Everybody does secretly love the villain um, because that villain is 
the one person that basically makes the whole movie or the play or the production. Um, actors don't want to be typecast. Mm-hmm. Um, and being typecast just means you stay in a box, being able to be basically very similar to what your personality is. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of actresses um, tend to play roles that have sex appeal. Well, that could be because of their looks um, and, you know, their personality. Well, you want to be able to step outside your own personality mm-hmm. and show that you can execute something that is not so similar to who you are. Um, so as far as... Um, Denzel and Training Day and being the villain, I think that that's, that was fun, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to do something that you're not going to regularly do. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not going to do anything illicit and be a dirty cop. That's, that's more challenging. So for somebody with the drive of Denzel Washington, um, you know, Michael B. Jordan and, um, yeah. Black, and Black Panther. And Black Panther. That's yeah. right. Um, Presenting those challenges um, just allow them to to really look forward to go and get it. Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder what it says about us as a society, and I have to include me in that. As I said, I'm uh, I'm a Godfather guy. Uh, what does it say about us that that we tend to be drawn toward uh, uh, the bad guy or? The guy that that seems to have more layers to him, because what you come to find, the the argument I've always made about the Godfather movies is that it's really not a gangster movie. It's a family movie. It's a movie about family and about the lengths to which uh, first Vito and then Michael will go in order to protect the family against the the harsh realities that they are confronted with in their particular world. And in order to be willing to do that, you have to be able uh, to to dig into the depths of of who you are and and find what some people might might say is a an unpleasant aspect of your personality, but you're using it in order to bring about a positive end for your family. You're trying to protect the family. Mm-hmm. The, the whole idea behind the Godfather is Michael saved the family. Uh, uh, you know, what does it say about us that that we tend to be drawn? And when I say us, I'm not necessarily including you, but but there's a segment of society of which I'm a part that tends to be drawn towards that that kind of character. Well, me as well. I'm included in that um, society. I think unconsciously. Lots of people gravitate to negativity, mm-hmm. to gossip. If you look at social media, people don't really share positivity. What they share and pass around are the negative things. And I don't care what the race is, whether it's white or black. We love to point out somebody's downfall, mm-hmm. um, what we heard, what we assumed. Nobody really knows the facts mm-hmm. of, of the, the matters. Um, and me, I'm a, I'm a loner. Um, and you know, I don't spend too much time with anybody besides my fiance, um, and my, my son. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I try and separate myself from negativity, 
But, you know, look at how many fights that we see posted. Um, oh, yeah. On social media, th these kids in the school system. Now, administrators, we don't have a choice but to allow on the lunch shift. I mean, the kids have to have cell phones because they have to communicate. Mm -hmm. But now that we all are in the, 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 the age of having camera phones and cameras everywhere, nobody promotes. You don't see kids posting the valedictorian speech right. um, or right. the A honor roll. Right. We're promoting somebody getting embarrassed, somebody getting, um, you know, beat up or abused. And, you know, it's something to laugh at um, temporarily. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a problem that needs to be addressed. But I think that comes from, you know, the leaders of the community. Mm -hmm. And we do have some good ones. Not saying we don't have enough, but we need to find a way to create some dialogue mm -hmm. and include everybody, you know, who I'm speaking of in this society that, you know, values that type of stuff. You're leading me into the, the, the natural question for me as a pastor. I said before we started uh, filming, recording, uh, that I consider myself to be a seeker. I'm trying to find different avenues, different ways to communicate to younger generations of people. Uh, I think that to believe that typical and traditional church uh, methods will appeal to younger people uh, is to make yourself passe after a while. Uh, kids don't necessarily want to be in church uh, at all, let alone be in there for two and three hours. Huh. Uh, <clears throat> getting kids to come to Sunday school, getting kids to come uh, to Bible study uh, on, on a regular, consistent basis is a difficult prospect. Uh, hearing what you're, you're saying about children and their value systems today, the kids that you mentor and uh, the, the value system that they place upon uh, names and labels and quick cash and conspicuous consumption and things of that sort. What role does the church play, in your opinion, uh, in trying to recapture the attention of, of young people, particularly young African-American people in, in 2018? Well, it depends on what church. Um, you have some churches that are old and traditional mm -hmm. um, Baptist churches, and you have, I'm not going to, I don't want to say these churches, no disrespect, but you have churches that um, do live streams. Mm -hmm. So the convenience of having a live stream eliminates the physical attendance mm -hmm. component. Um, if I can wake up, get out of bed, turn on my laptop mm -hmm. and be right there as well as use my debit card to pay my tithes. I don't have mm -hmm. to engage. So I think the middle age um, generation needs to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is we have to not be passive about the importance of having our young people in church. Mm -hmm. um, as a father, my son is four years old. And I told my fiance, I tell her all the time, 
if I'm not in church, how can I expect him to to be in church mm-hmm. and to want to learn, to want to be baptized and things of that sort? Um, so I think you have to you have to do things to make to appeal to young people. Um, have activities. Mm-hmm. Um, have events that they can be involved in where at you know have panels where they can actually voice their opinion now the church has to be the church mm-hmm. um, you know there's nothing new under the sun you 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 can't compromise um you know christianity and religion and and the the respect and the fear of god mm-hmm. um so it's a thin line but i think you have to target um, these young people by doing some things that are going to draw them in, that are going to appeal to them. I tell my students all the time, the way I have good classroom management is I tell them it's a time and a place for stuff. Mm-hmm. And I get them to understand, hey, it's a time to play, mm-hmm. it's a time to joke, and now it's time to learn. Mm-hmm. So during that bell-to-bell classroom time, mm-hmm. it's time to learn. Lunch, it's time to talk. Mm-hmm. Get your cell phone out. It's, you know, that that is the, t- the appropriate time mm-hmm. for you to have fun. And when you get a child to understand that you can have those incentives to be the motivating factor to get them to do exactly what you want to do. But you also have to show them that you love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and showing that you love young people is actually listening to them and showing them that you care. Um, you show a child that you love them, they'll do whatever you want mm-hmm. um, them to do. You are obviously a disciplined person. I'm, I'm looking at you. Uh, you're fit. I take it that you exercise, you work out, uh, you're handsome, you're articulate, you've, you, you've got your degree, your teaching in the classroom. You're a disciplined person. <sighs> One of the knocks against young people is that they lack discipline. And and some people will, I know you've you, you already said that they like to point at faults and failures, but but not want to deal with the why. They'll quickly point to the home and say, well, you see, the home wasn't disciplined. And so that's why this is that way. <clears throat> Perhaps there's some truth to that. I don't think that it's, that, that that's totally accurate. But how do you translate the discipline that you instill for yourself into somebody else. How, how do you get your, your, your mentees to aspire to follow the discipline that you have adopted for your own life? Um, you have to evaluate yourself and you have to learn from your experiences. Nobody in life is going to have a squeaky, a squeaky clean, every day is a good day type of life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the way I reach those mentees, I I point out experiences that other people may have experienced, um, something that I may have experienced that I can share with them, or something that I know that they have experienced. And when I speak, when I'm using the word experience, I'm saying, you know, falling short. Um, you know, falling down, you know, fall, fall seven times, get up eight. Mm -hmm. That's a cliche that we can say, but you have to really be analytical and get them to understand the meaning of it. Um, I use the word resilient all the time. 
Well, yeah, it's a big word, and it sounds very intellectual, but what does it mean? Mm -hmm. It's the will to overcome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me in my life, I was smart enough to learn from my mistakes and other people's mistakes, um, despite being in an environment. Um, I'm off Spanish Town Road. Mm -hmm. um, the lake is my neighborhood where mm -hmm. I was born and raised, and nobody over there graduated college or went to college or even high school, mm -hmm. but I did. Um, so I'm not a product of that environment, but I still have relationships where I'm able to relate to those people in that environment. Um, so being relatable is a very, very important component in reaching anybody mm -hmm. because, you know, kids, adolescents, young adults, they have to feel comfortable opening up to you. Mm -hmm. If you're too intellectual and they, you know, feel like they're not on the same level as you, they won't open up. Mm -hmm. But even though I wear a suit and tie, um, I have a white collar um, demeanor when mm -hmm. I'm at work, I can show them, hey, I, you know, I have a tattoo as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say being relatable is the biggest component um, to try and invoke change in somebody and get somebody to understand that you don't have to be the same way all day, every mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a time and a place for stuff. Overcoming failure, uh, trying again. One of the things that, that I have observed, I, I have a 23-year-old and a 20-year-old, two sons. I have two nieces, uh, 24 and just turned 19. Uh, well, about to turn 20. Sorry, Tori. I didn't mean to skip your birthday. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm around a lot of young people. Uh, they seem to have a difficult time overcoming failure. Uh, uh, when, when, when they suffer setback, I know for some people it's, it's, it's a monumental thing. There's almost a breakdown. It's almost like the presumption is anything that I tr that I put my hand to, I'm supposed to succeed. And when I don't experience that success and the things that I think should go along with success, then I don't know how to handle failure. As a mentor, as a coach, as an instructor, how do you help your young people cope with and overcome failure? Um, my philosophy is a question that I pose to them. Are you a loser or a winner? And you have to be definitive mm -hmm. when you say a loser or a winner. When you're a winner, even though you may feel defeated, you're going to have a, a bad taste in your mouth um, if you are not able to execute not able to be successful. If you fall short, you're gonna have something inside of you that has the desire to, 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 to win, to overcome that. When you're a loser and you're defeated, you're comfortable with falling short. Mm -hmm. um, that is very challenging because <laughs> sometimes 
you have young people who have never had success. Mm -hmm. And that's when the mentor has to create a situation. See, that's when it becomes psychological. You have to play a mind game, mm -hmm. you know? So I may play a game of checkers mm -hmm. um, with a child and I may let them win. Mm -hmm. And even though that's not a big accomplishment, mm -hmm. um, they are able to experience the ability to succeed yeah. and win. So mm -hmm. that is just a start, you know, a building block um, on that stairwell to trying to get them to understand life is full of good moments mm -hmm. and bad moments um, and storms and sunshine. And, you know, when, when young people understand that, you know, bad days are a part of life, they'll begin to understand that they need to do things that will allow them to be on the winning side of things. But Mr. Wade, Coach Wade, if God loved me, then 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 why why would He let me fail like this? You 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 always talking about God and church and uh, if God really loved me, then 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 how how come I failed? Uh, at this, uh, I tried, I went home, I studied, I, I put my, my best foot forward and I failed anyway. What, what, what does that say about your God, Mr. Wade? Well, it says that he knows that you weren't given all of what he blessed you to be able to, um, give. Yeah. You fell short, but you can do better. So, you know, falling short is what I would like to say is an isolated incident. Um, hmm. What I mean by isolated, um, it's just one one time, you know. Um, it doesn't have to be a pattern. No, it doesn't have to be a pattern, but... I think it's important that, that children experience failure. I think it's important that they know what it what it is to lose. I think that the earlier they learn what it is to lose, the more they will appreciate and benefit from success. Mm -hmm. and, you know, nobody likes to lose. God knows I don't like to lose. I'm a Cowboys fan. Nobody it, does. It, it's been 22 years since we've done anything <laughs> worthwhile. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's that, that's a hurtful thing. Uh, however. I'm, I'm, I'm a strong believer that you learn more from losing than you do from winning if you don't allow the, the, the losing to defeat you. You well, can lose and not be defeated. Well, I like to say if you never, you don't know what true joy is if you don't experience pain. Um, yeah, So exactly. You know, I'm glad you brought that up and put that um, in words, because sometimes it is hard to articulate, you know, your thoughts about that. But if you if you never lose, you never know how bad you want something until it till it's gone. Right. So, you know, the 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 comparison of winning and losing um, goes hand in hand um, with what you just brought up. You're 33 years old. You're you're uh, teaching. You're coaching. 
uh, you're mentoring, you're engaged to be married, you're a father, uh, you have a lot going on in your life. How do you feel about Baton Rouge? Born and raised here. Is, is, is this a place where you would like to spend the rest of your days, or do you have aspirations beyond Baton Rouge? I'm torn between that. Um, Baton Rouge is is a place where we're diversified. Um, and I'm going to bring up North Baton Rouge. Sure. Um, in North Baton Rouge, there aren't any even there aren't even any places to eat. You have Jack in the Box, you have Canes, you have Tony Seafood. Burger King and McDonald's. Got a Burger King and a Subway. Yeah. um, As far as raising my kids, I would like my kids to be around all races of people Mm -hmm. um, so they can relate to all walks of life. Mm -hmm. I went to Southern Lab in high school. So ninth through 12th grade, I didn't go to school with not one person of a different race. Right. Um, We had a foreign exchange student, but... The culture was basically Southern University. Mm-hmm. I also went to Southern University um, where I spent an additional five years. So you're looking at a decade of my life where I was around 90% black folks. Right. Um, so when I look at my kids and raising them, I would like to um, you know, be in a more diverse area, but this is home. Mm-hmm. And you know, it made me who I am. So what I'm going to instill in my, my children are going to be principles that are going to allow them to be successful mm-hmm. anyway. But um, that's why I say I'm torn because, you know, I think about the Texas area. You know, you have Hispanics, yes. you have, you know, whites, you have blacks, and it's not everybody pulling each other down. Mm-hmm. Um, in Baton Rouge, it's like people are okay with you doing well, but they don't want to want you to do better than them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually not that type of person. I like to celebrate someone else's success. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of times we, and I'm saying I'm speaking in my age realm, we, we don't get saluted and praised. Mm-hmm. Um, for doing positive things, but that's when you have to be self-motivated and you have to have the discipline to want to, want to succeed on your own. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my take on it. I've been pastoring now for 32 years, Uh, six years in New Orleans, uh, the other 26 years here in Baton Rouge. One of the more, frustrating aspects of what I do is watching bright, talented, gifted young people graduate from high school, graduate from college, and then find that they have to leave Baton Rouge in order to enjoy the success that they think that they should enjoy. 
after the achievements that they have achieved. Uh, they graduate from Southern, they graduate from LSU, they graduate from Xavier or, or from Tulane, from wherever it is they went to school. And they moved to Dallas, they moved to Houston, they moved to Nashville, they moved to Atlanta. You don't hear so much about Atlanta anymore. But they find that they have to leave Baton Rouge in order uh, to experience success. And uh, I wonder if you think that if, if, if my perspective on that is valid, that that's still going on, and if that's the case, what can we as a community do to stem that tide? Well, as a community, we have to be accountable for our own actions. Um, I like to bring up, you know, the Alden Sterling um, situation. Okay. And, you know, Alden Sterling... Well, not Alan Sterling, but every individual needs to point the finger at themselves. You need to take a look in the mirror and understand that you can only control what you do. Mm -hmm. I cannot control getting gray hair. I can't control if I get bald or not. So I can't worry about that. Um, if you put yourself in a bad position, then you increase the risk of some, something bad being the outcome. Um, so if we can identify that there is some unfair treatment going on, um, by law enforcement, whether it be from black or white, Hispanic, um, then if you know that it's a high risk for you to be shot at, you need to abide by the instructions you are given, mm -hmm. um, if you value your life, mm -hmm. um, as a community, we need to engage with law enforcement and let's create some dialogue whereas we can both be open, both sides can be open to listening and understanding, you know, what is the root of the problem and mm -hmm. where does it start? Mm -hmm. um, because when things start the wrong way, you know, the outcome is going to tend to be, you know, messed up. Um, Alden Sterling, he had a firearm on him. And if you have a firearm, you're considered dangerous because you can kill somebody. Um, so for me, if I have a gun on me, then yes, I am going to put my hands up and listen to what law enforcement is saying because they have a job to do. What I like to point out to a lot of people is you have two white police officers that are policing a black, impoverished area. Mm -hmm. Somebody gets killed, okay? It's my family member. Well, those two white police officers come door to door asking, does anybody know anything? Well, what are we doing in the black community? Uh, I, I'm not going to rat. I'm not going to snitch. Mm -hmm. Um after these officers deal with that pattern over and over and over again, they're going to begin to not really be genuinely concerned about trying to solve the problem because they realize, hey, nobody's ever going to say anything. Mm -hmm. The other factor is put yourself in their shoes. And I don't agree with anything that, you know, transpired regarding the Alton Sterling situation, but if... I'm a police officer. 
in an environment where people live reckless and they do not really have a, a concern and value for life, then, you know, I'm going to be on guard and be ready to protect myself, you know, looking for the worst case scenario. Well, you bring up Sterling, uh, and uh, certainly for me, it's, it, it's been a touchstone issue, a, a very sensitive issue. I, I, it's not like I've been on the front lines or anything like that, because there are others who have been far more involved than I am. But as I consider uh, all that transpired around Alton Sterling, my concern has to do with the lack of, of meaningful contact that law enforcement has with certain segments of uh, the Baton Rouge community, primarily impoverished and minority uh, segments of the community. And when I say law enforcement, I'm not just limiting that to white law enforcement, law enforcement in general. general. <clears throat> I think that uh, while I support the mayor, while I support law enforcement, while they do uh, a monumentally difficult job uh, and it takes an incredible amount of courage to do what they do, I, I don't think that it is unreasonable uh, to expect uh, a little bit more from Baton Rouge law enforcement than what we have received, particularly with regard to uh, community policing, uh, being better known within the community, uh, uh, having a stake in the community, uh, where, where you feel like you're more than just the keeper of the jail but that you are a part, you, you are a fellow citizen within this community. And I think that that has been sorely lacking. And I think that where that is lacking, it leads to situations like this. When you watch the video of, of, of what happened to Mr. Sterling, uh, and, and I'm no expert in law enforcement, but I've sat with people who are experts in law enforcement, and they have all said to a person, it was a completely avoidable yes, sir. situation. Uh, did not have to happen at all. Uh, and if, if the approach of the law enforcement officers had been different, then you would have, you would have never heard of Alton Sterling. Right. I, I <clears throat> totally agree. I agree, but I'm going to look at it from a perspective of how I can prevent mm -hmm. myself. Uh, and that's the message that I want to convey to others. Unfortunate things happen all the time. Mm -hmm. Again, I began by saying you on, you it's, you can only control certain things. Certainly, what Sterling could have controlled was, you know, his behavior. Mm -hmm. It was very wrong and it's unfair. But how many times do things have to happen for us to wake up and identify that these people are racist? Mm -hmm. And when I say these people, I'm saying people have. People are prejudiced mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. You look at Mike Brown um, in mm -hmm. St. Louis. Mm -hmm. um, well, he's 6'3", 6'4", and this police officer is, you know, roughly 5'8". Mm -hmm. And I think he stole a cigar. And he charged and ran at this man. Well, 
you got to be accountable for your actions. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you don't steal, this never happens. But, okay, he made a bad decision. But after the fact, he charged towards somebody in mm -hmm. law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So even though the man may not have made the best decision, you know, by me identifying that, okay, I'm not going to do something that's going to increase the risk of me being in harm's way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we should just take responsibility and, you know, not be slaves, not be robots, um, and just follow the commands from law enforcement. But it, it, it's, it's a thin line, um, especially when they're at a disadvantage in a lot of situations. Well, what you're saying is pragmatic, and uh, you're, you're, you're suggesting, and, and I tend to agree, that the goal is to survive the encounter. Yeah. If there's going to be an encounter, you, you want to survive the encounter. Uh, and, and, and I, you know, as a father of two young black men, certainly I, I totally 100% agree with that. My, my, own, my only response to that is <clears throat> we have to move to a place where we're not afraid of these encounters. I can honestly say I agree. I, I, I've been pulled over any number of times because uh, in my younger days, I don't do it anymore. In my younger days, <laughs> I used to drive a little fast. Uh, I, I've been pulled over more more times than you can count. I have never had the kind of experience with law enforcement that I have heard of others having. And that is not to say that I, I don't believe that they've had those encounters. It, it just has not been my experience. Uh, uh, so I don't, I, I'm not approaching this from a firsthand point of view. Mm -hmm. I know because this happened to me. But I do read and I do see and I do watch the news and I see that it does happen enough times to other people. And the goal is yes, comply with law enforcement, follow the commands. I, I, I agree with that. But the other side of the goal is be reasonable in your approach yes, as sir. law enforcement. Be respectful in your approach as, as law enforcement. Show uh, a certain degree of firmness that does not move to the place of belligerence. Right. Uh, and, and, and let the encounter be what it is. If, I, if, if I've committed an infraction, uh, do what you have to do in order to, to, to let me know that I shouldn't do what I have done. To de-escalate the situation. Yes. I, I just, I, I, I have concerns that through this Alton Sterling situation, the fact that there were no federal charges placed, that there were no state charges placed, that the district attorney recused himself from, from doing any, uh, in, in, from, from pressing any kind of charge on a local level. And everything now is going to uh, fall back on a civil uh, procedure. Uh, and at some point, uh, the family uh, of Mr. Sterling will probably receive some kind of an award, but will that award equate to justice? No, sir. And the answer is that it will not. Uh, so, though, and, and, and the fact that, that other families will have to deal with this again, it's going to happen again. Yeah. In fact, it has happened again, and, and it continues to happen. And, and that's what I'm saying. It has to be a lesson 
um, taken from this, they did not have to kill. No. They do. They do not have to murder. Um, there are so many other parts of the of the body that you know could have been targeted that would have still preserved his life. But the harsh reality is, they don't care. Um, so, I think we must learn a lesson. And you know, I'm all about surviving. But to tackle the issues before they actually happen, I think law enforcement and the general public need to have a a peaceful dialogue mm -hmm. where both parties um, can just speak on concerns and we can come to a solution. Um, this is an ugly world, an ugly society. And there are so many stereotypes. One thing that I did in my classroom, I I went outside the classroom and I I sagged my pants, sagged my pants, mm -hmm. and um, I was walking crazy. Mm -hmm. And I walked in the classroom and all the kids they they started laughing. Um, they like, Coach Wade, what what are you doing? What you what you know about that? You sagging your pants? But I got their attention. And I said, mm -hmm. your appearance is a determining factor on how you're going to be treated. Right. So if you ride around, you know, smoking or or drinking, you're going to increase the risk for to be stereotyped and identified as something that you may not be. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm all about being preventative um, of, you know, unfair treatment. Mm -hmm. um, I've been pulled over lots of times. Officers have drew down their weapons on me. Um, and then when I opened my mouth and I could speak with intellect, you know, they, they changed their whole demeanor. Mm -hmm. um, so I I feel like just talking to the black community, mm -hmm. we have to be accountable for what we can control, and that is our demeanor, our actions, and the way we, we do things. Mm -hmm. As we seek to wrap this up, let, 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 let me ask you, uh, the, the home, the school, the church, uh, historically, those are the things that serve as the hubs of the African-American community. At one time, we could talk about various businesses, but truth be told, uh, there's a paucity of, of black-owned business. There, there, there are severe limits on black enterprise uh, for various reasons, some of which are racial, some of which are economic. Uh, but the home, the school, and the church, what ways can you suggest, uh, based on your experience, to bring a synthesis of those three great entities together for the benefit of young people. <clears throat> that is an ongoing challenge, and I'm sure that's why you um, presented that question. We have to appeal to the home. Um, so the church and the school is a business, and 
they're in the business of educating and, you know, being shepherds. Um, saving souls. Yeah, saving souls um, for the sake of salvation. The home is consumed with so many distractions from those two things. And it, it goes back to what I said, the values. Um, there's no way that we can eliminate or reverse um, social media and, you know, s cell phones and these things. But we need to utilize these things to appeal to these people. Mm -hmm. um, lots of times we only want to run to the school when something has happened to our child. Mm -hmm. um, they've been mistreated. I'm going, I have to share this experience. Um, they had a child in my classroom who had a designer belt. Now, the belt was fake, but, you know, that's the values of these kids. Well, that same young man was in my class, no paper, no pencil. I have the bell ringer. I'm saying, son, where's your, where's your school supplies? Where's your pencil and paper? Now, I provided him with a pencil and paper, but he blurted out, I got this $500 belt. Well, you have a $500 belt, but you don't have a five-cent pencil. Mm -hmm. So I told the child, step outside the classroom, um, you know, for me to get him some school supplies because he was distracting the rest of the class. Well, child goes home, tells his dad. Father comes up to the school, pulling money out of his pocket, Slammed it on the counter saying, what, you think we can't afford pencils? And it took for the principal to interject to say, Daddy, think about what this, this teacher is saying, this black man is saying. It's okay that your child has nice clothes, but he doesn't have a writing utensil, which is the reason he's here. Mm -hmm. So... That's what has to change fr from these parents. They have to understand that they have to not be passive about make, forcing their kids to do what's right mm -hmm. and to do what is expected of them and to quit being so sensitive about somebody getting on your child. You, mm -hmm. you stated earlier that when you were growing up, you know, it didn't matter who it was. It they not. could chastise you. And they knew that, you know, your parents wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Well, the reason for that was because they were all on the same accord. Mm -hmm. Everybody has so many different agendas. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, using the things that appeal to everybody, um, social media, I think those are the avenues that could be a start to invoke some change um, and connecting the dots um, between the home, the school, and the church. Byron Wade, actor, instructor, coach, father, soon-to-be husband, mentor. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for the next Thrive Podcast.